This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Migraine is a common problem. A survey of over 4,000 people in England showed that 7% of males and 18% of females experienced migraine with or without aura within the last year. Attack rates were one or more per month in most people and most experience interference with activities of daily living in 50% or more of their attacks. So this is an important problem as well as a common one. To tell us about how we can help, we have on the line Professor Timothy Collins, who is Associate Professor of Neurology at Duke University Medical Center in the USA. So, Professor Collins, tell us, what exactly is migraine? Well, migraine is a a process that uh, we don't fully understand, but it causes a a painful, throbbing sensation in the head in, in most people, and it almost always has some combination of nausea, sensitivity to light, or sensitivity to sounds. A lot of people have changes in their vision before their headache or during the headache that combined with the other symptoms really interferes with their ability to to function in their their daily life. We don't fully understand this process that we call migraine, but it's clearly caused by abnormal discharges of a group of nerve cells in the brainstem that result in this increased sensitivity to pain and other sensations and even results in a change in how patients perceive the pain that they're experiencing. And all of this combined results in varying levels of disability on the patient's part that makes them pretty miserable during the process of uh, this thing that we call a migraine. Okay, thank you. And I guess first and foremost becomes diagnosis. Tell us about recent advances in, in diagnosis, if there has been any. The diagnosis of migraine is really based uh, entirely on information we can get from the patient about what they're going through, the the characteristics of their pain, where it hurts, what kind of symptoms they have associated with the pain. We have to get this information really from just talking with the patient. And at the same time, we're also looking for any clues that there may be something more serious going on complaints that aren't part of a regular headache process, things like weakness or loss of consciousness or double vision. Unfortunately, we don't really have a test for migraine. We can't put a patient in a scanner like an MRI scanner or a CT scanner and diagnose the migraine. Really, the advances in our diagnosis of of migraine are really advances in making sure that they don't have some other medical illness like tumor or multiple sclerosis or aneurysm. And so after we talk with the patient, our, what the testing that we're doing is really looking for other diseases that might mimic migraine. Okay, thank you. That's, that's helpful. And staying on the diagnosis theme, I wonder what are the common pitfalls in diagnosis? Well, I think the most common difficulty in diagnosing migraine is either not having the time to talk with the patient about everything they're going through or not getting accurate information from the patient in terms of of the different problems that happen during their headache uh, attack. Sometimes that's just a lack of awareness on the provider's 
side in terms of what the best questions are to ask for that. If you don't have good information about the symptoms the patient's having and whether or not there's any of the what we call red flags present that would make us do additional testing, um, it can be difficult to make an accurate diagnosis. The red flags are the things that really key the provider in that there's a more serious problem. So things like uh, episodes of loss of consciousness, uh, asking specifically about whether or not they get weak or paralyzed their headaches or how long ago the problem started are kind of important questions, and not neglecting some of those questions can lead the physician or the provider down kind of the wrong path in terms of diagnosis. Okay, great. Thank you. And moving on to, to management now, uh, can you tell us about recent advances in management? Well, the most recent advance in management is this new category of Uh, medications for migraine prevention that has been developed over the last approximately 10 years that are custom antibodies against a protein called calcitonin gene-related protein, or CGRP. These were developed beginning in the early 2000s after pharmaceutical drugs that they developed to block the the system had uh, really unacceptable side effects and toxicities. Three of these new products were recently FDA approved for use in the United States uh, and are fairly remarkable in terms of the ease of use and the lack of side effects. They appear to have relatively minimal to no side effects. There's no contraindications to their use. Uh, Compared to our older medications, many of which were not safe in certain populations, you know, people with poorly controlled high blood pressure or people with a history of coronary artery disease or stroke couldn't take some of our older medications because they were felt to be too risky. And those risks really aren't present in this new group of medications. And so there's actually at least one more medication in this category that we're expecting to come on the market in the near future. So we're really expecting you know, good things with these new medications in terms of safety and effectiveness. And and one new drug that's mentioned in the BMJ best practice topic on migraine is erinumab. Is that a drug from that class of medications? Yeah, that's exactly right. Erinumab is a humanized antibody that blocks the receptor for this protein called CGRP. So this antibody actually sticks in the receptor and prevents CGRP from binding. It first came on the market in the United States in June of 2018, this year, and has uh, reasonably good effectiveness in terms of decreasing the number of headaches that patients have in the course of a month. It's an injectable medication and currently is marketed in a spring-loaded auto-injector that the patient uses at home once a month as a prevention medication for their headaches. Side effects that have been reported with this are are relatively minimal. In the clinical trial, they actually compare the drug to a placebo, and the only side effects that occurred more often in the drug group compared with the placebo were redness of the injection site, constipation, and muscle spasms. And those two were in the range of about 1% of patients that were receiving the drug. So pretty minimal side effects compared to uh, many of our older prevention medications. 
Okay, thank you. That's helpful. And I'm guessing that this drug wouldn't be for everybody with migraine. It would be for select groups of, of patients. Is, is that correct? And, and if so, what would be the criteria for, for prescribing it? So in the United States, it's approved for the prevention of migraine, and there's not really much in the way of restrictions on it in terms of how bad the migraines have to be. Compared to Botox brand of botulinum toxin, which is restricted to patients with more than 14 headache days per month, Arunumab is not does not have that kind of specific patient population. It is significantly more expensive than the older medications, which are all really generic and inexpensive. And so at least here in the United States, it's being restricted by the insurance companies to patients that have already failed at least two of the standard prevention medications like topiramate or valproate or amitriptyline. In terms of contraindications, the only people that we really are not giving the medication to at this point is uh, women who are pregnant or who might become pregnant in the next six months. Uh, It's not fully understood whether or not this new medication has any effects on pregnancy. It is an antibody, and some antibodies do cross the placenta into the developing fetus, so we're, we're not putting pregnant women on it right now. This uh, arunumab also has a very long half-life. It takes the bodies about 28 days to eliminate half of the dose that we receive. And so the medication is going to be present for three to four months after a single dose, which makes it difficult to stop quickly if someone discovers they're pregnant. They're still going to have a significant exposure for the first half of the pregnancy. So that's probably the biggest restriction right now that we're looking at. Okay, thank you. That's that's really helpful. And and continuing on with management, can you tell us what are the common pitfalls in management? Well, I think there's there's two or three things that we see over and over and over again in our headache clinic. The first one is more of a patient issue. Prevention medications, if you're trying to decrease somebody's headache frequency, you really have to try the medication for six to eight weeks before you can say that it's not doing anything. And many patients are very reluctant to wait that long to see if the medication is working. They all want something done immediately about their headaches, and prevention medications don't really act quickly. The second thing that we see frequently is more of a provider issue in terms of not offering the patient a second or third medication to try for prevention. There's a long list of medications that we know are effective for headache prevention based on randomized clinical trials, and none of those medications work for 100% of patients. In fact, at best, any single prevention medication will work for 60 or 65% of the people we give it to. And so it's really important to have a list or plan of what you're going to do if this first medication I give the patient doesn't work, what's gonna, what do you have teed up for second and third try? Um, because you may need to try two or three before you find one that works. The same issue is true for acute therapy in terms of, you know, helping out each headache attack when they have it. The same issue of not trying more than one medication is a, a problem that we see in our clinic frequently. 
The third thing that, that we see frequently and have to talk with patients about is that, you know, unfortunately, all of our treatments for headache have the possibility of side effects. And so we have to talk up front with our patients and, you know, kind of set expectations that, you know, this, this medication works really well for some patients, but it can have side effects and make sure the patient is understanding that, you know, if they have a side effect, you know, we can take them off and try something else and see if we can find something that works as well for their headaches but without the same side effects so that they can tolerate it better. The whole goal of doing this is to decrease their headache frequency so they can function more normally in their life and, you know, making a patient feel terrible with the medication from side effects, even though it's helping their headaches, if they still feel terrible, they're still not going to be functioning very well. Yeah, yeah, that's very helpful. And moving on to another topic that came up in BMJ Best Practice on Migraine was the use of Valproate as a preventive agent, and that's being used less and less. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yeah, Valproate is is actually a really good medication for migraine prevention, and it's something that's been used really for 20 years or a bit more for for migraine prevention. The problem with Valproate is that, first of all, you really have to check laboratory monitoring while the patient is taking Valproate. In the epilepsy population, Valproate's been reported to cause bone marrow suppression with low weight blood cell count. And uh, it's also been reported to cause elevation of the liver function tests. And so we really have to monitor for that when we first put patients on Valproate. So that's inconvenient for both the patient and their provider. The patient has to come in every couple of weeks to get blood drawn for lab tests. It, It drives up the cost of care for the patient. Valproate causes weight gain in 10 to 15% of people that take it. This is really very unpopular with patients. Uh, many of my patients have already looked up things on the internet that they can take for their headaches, and they come in and tell me, I'm not going to take this medication because it causes weight gain. And convincing people to try the medication, even though it might cause weight gain, is very difficult. As you noted at the start of our, our talk, migraine headache is about three times as common in women as men. And women are are fairly sensitive to uh, issues like weight gain, and they get pretty upset with us if we put them on a medication that makes them gain weight. And then the, kind of the third problem with valproate is that it causes really severe birth defects if someone conceives while they're while they're taking valproate. Uh, it dramatically increases the risk for spina bifida, which is a very severe uh, birth defect. The problem with spina bifida is that the the birth defect that we call spina bifida starts out within the first 30 days of pregnancy, and so it's often before someone even knows they've conceived. So if they're taking valproate and get pregnant, by the time they know they're pregnant, the damage is pretty much already done if they're going to have a problem with it. So we have to be kind of cautious just from that standpoint in putting women on valproate. So when you combine all of those issues together and then compare it to another older medication like topiramate, which causes 
weight loss as a side effect and doesn't have to have laboratory monitoring, people are really reluctant to to take valproate at all. Okay, thank you. That's that's very clear. And last question is about questions, really. What common questions do you get asked about migraine from doctors and other healthcare professionals? In other words, what have we missed in what we've been speaking about so far? Well, one of the things that other healthcare professionals are always really interested in is whether or not there is any non-prescription or so-called natural treatments for migraines because our patient population here in the U.S. and I think to a similar extent in the U.K. is very interested in natural treatments and vitamins and a variety of things like that. And on the headache side of treatment, one of the things that complicates our ability to recommend vitamins or other products is that migraine patients have a really high placebo response. And so when they do a research trial for headache prevention, 25% or more of the patients will get better on the placebo that they're given because they believe that they're getting a real medication. And that process or that problem called placebo response complicates our ability to evaluate some of the herbal remedies out there. Having said that, there have been some decent clinical trials that help us understand which things might work. Uh, for example, uh, well, riboflavin, which is vitamin B2, at high doses is better than a placebo for headache prevention. Riboflavin is relatively inexpensive. The dose that people have to take for, for headache prevention with riboflavin is 200 milligrams twice a day. Um, and that clearly does work for headache prevention. There's an herbal product uh, called Butterbarut extract that is available here in the U.S., and there's at least a couple of countries in Europe where it's not available because of some manufacturing problems connected with hepatotoxic glycosides that are present in the uh, native product. But there was a randomized blinded trial almost 15 years ago now that showed that butterbarut extract was significantly better than a placebo for headache prevention. And then the most recent one that uh, that we're using for prevention is melatonin, which has been used for many, many years for, for sleep. It is over-the-counter. It's inexpensive. And in a, a trial comparing it to amitriptyline, another one of our older prescription medications for migraine prevention, melatonin was actually significantly better than amitriptyline when uh, measuring the decrease in the number of migraine attacks per month it actually had a higher response rate. Almost 60% of people taking melatonin had a dramatic reduction in their headache frequency. And they also looked at the common side effect of weight gain that people worry about, and melatonin actually didn't cause weight gain compared to amitriptyline. So it was it's something that appears to work as good as a prescription medication with less side effects, and it's something we've actually been recommending quite a bit to our patients in the last year and a half. Okay. Thank you very much, Professor Collins, and thanks to you all for listening. We hope that this has been helpful, and we hope that you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better care for affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this topic of migraine. Thank you once again.